Well, good morning. Well, I had no idea that there was that uh, giftedness and talent among the brothers there, and that was an outstanding job. I just want to know, is it going to be on iTunes when I get home? Because <laughs> I'll download it onto my shuffle. <laughs> I'd like to hear the instrumental version of some of that, too, just to hear that. That was outstanding. Very good. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 22. You may not be familiar with the chapter when I say Genesis 22, but you're going to be a good number of you very familiar with the story. Genesis chapter 22, it's really just a very simple title of a message on, or should I say a a message on the subject of a test of love and trust. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorn, or by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars in the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Well, what a test, huh? 
Well, we've all taken tests. And over the course of our, our lives, some are obviously more memorable than others. Just in February, Cindy took a test and had been studying like crazy for her insurance exam. And we went together to San Francisco, and while she took her three-hour exam, I went and found a 24-hour fitness and prayed and just was on the treadmill while she was taking her test, and she got the results that morning that she passed, and so now she's a licensed insurance agent. Laura is, at the moment, one of our daughters is in the testing process to be a police dispatcher. Imagine that. wonder where that came from. Actually, police and fire for East Bay Regional Parks, and so she's in the whole background process and was taking a number of tests for that. But I wonder, and you think about this, have you ever thought about how the test also measures the person who's giving it? And not just us who are taking it. I remember when we lived in Ireland, and it was a common theme that when you were going to go for your Irish driver's license, which you had to have after one year of living there, that no American could pass it the first time. That was what the horror stories were. No American can pass. And it turned out that Cindy and I had the test on the same day, the same instructor, not at the same time, but just back to back with each other. And we felt that this, this guy, don't remember his name now, but this guy just had, um, our lives were in his hands by the fact of whether or not he was going to pass us or he was going to fail us because we wouldn't be able to drive. I don't know if you've ever had to try and do a five-point turn, but that's what you had to do in Ireland. Not a three-point, but a five-point. And we both came back, and I came back, took the test first and passed, and then waited in the lobby while she took her test and passed, and then we went out for definitely some fish and chips after that occasion when we passed. When you think of test takers and test givers, there are some great test givers and some who aren't that great. In some cases, maybe you passed a class and you say, well, that, it was the instructor was good. Maybe there's other times where, you know, you, you've studied and you studied and all of a sudden what's on that test doesn't seem like anything you remember being covered. And so we might say in those moments, wow, he's a lousy, he was a lousy test. You know, it wasn't a fair test says something about the test giver. Well, in this passage in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham had a test. And really, it seemed doomed to failure on many, many levels. And yet, what we learn in this story, not only about Abraham, but about the test giver, God himself, expands our understanding of God. And that's a good thing. Of both of what he expects of us, and how he provides above and beyond our imagination. Now, for the sake of time, I can't go into this, but just trust me on these passages. If you want to write them down, you can refer back to the website, and you can follow these if you don't. But in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, when Abraham is already 75 years old, God promises that he will be the father of a great nation. But there is an issue here. He doesn't have any children. Then in Genesis chapter 13, the promise is repeated. But there still isn't any sign of children. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, when Abraham starts to doubt, God in his grace and his faithfulness, what he does to us very often in our lives, he renews his promise. But there still aren't any children. So when he's 86... 
some of you are thinking, 86. Abraham decides to take things in his own hands. And I wonder if have we ever done that. Have we ever done that? So can't be too hard here on Abraham. But he did, and it wasn't right. But he fathers a child from one of their servants, Hagar. And so you have Ishmael. But then in Genesis chapter 17, 13 years later, when Abraham is now a ripe young age of 99 and his wife is 90, God renews his promise. And then we come up to Genesis chapter 21. We're almost there. And the promised son finally arrives. Now, some of us who have, are privileged to have children, we think of when we hear the news, it lasts nine months, sometimes eight, sometimes nine, and maybe a half. We don't have this long, but these two had a long time to wait. They had an understanding that you're going to be the father of many nations and that God's going to do this thing. But it was going to take some time. So in Genesis 21, Isaac is born. What an awesome birth that must have been. What a miraculous birth that was. Second to the Virgin Mary, probably. But then God says in Genesis chapter 22, take him and kill him. Now, first reading of this, this seems like a bizarre story. Child sacrifice is something that was barbaric and it was primitive. And whenever we hear that, it just repulses us. Anything to do with where a child is injured. And it's interesting because it's even something God commanded the Israelites not to do. And so we read this and we say, well, God wouldn't do this, would he? And so my first point, and there's just a couple this morning, is the one is, if we're going to be really honest, as we just approach this text with its questions and with what God is saying here, we would say this, this test doesn't appear, doesn't appear to make much sense. Don't underestimate how shocking that must have been for Abraham to hear these words. You see, Abraham didn't have the advantage to say, hmm, this is interesting. I wonder if anyone else has experienced this before. I'll Google them. I'll Google it and find out, has anybody ever had this happen where God has said this? Or, you know, maybe there's somebody else's blog site I can find and they will tell the story of how this has happened. There's no, nothing like that for Abraham. He didn't have the advantage we have of reading the story back in Genesis and to see how God was working. He just hears God say, take now your son, verse 2, your only son, whom you love, and offer him up as a burnt offering. We know what this outcome is, and it's a good outcome. But he didn't. And it's all the more interesting if you think, because back in chapter 21, if you want to just flip back one page for a second, there's a little bit of drama. Actually, I've been doing a study, and what, the reason this precipitated this message is I've been in a study in Genesis for about the last three or four months. And I've been loving it, and I'm in about chapter 40 now. And I knew when we came to this chapter, I just said, you know what, this is what I want. God, you laid this on my heart to share at San Ramon Valley. And so there's been a lot of interesting stuff in this story in Genesis. If you haven't read it in a while, go back and read it. It is just amazing. Some real interesting stuff. And there is some family drama that goes on in chapter 21, verse 9. 
says, Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. This is Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. Now, some here in the audience are probably gravitating and loving verse 12. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. So, ladies, you can quote this verse. Abraham had to send Ishmael away. And the text tells us it greatly distressed him. So now he's left with Isaac. And again, it wasn't like Ishmael could email him and say, hey, this is how things are going. Or call him on a cell. When you were going to do this, this meant, you know what, I may not see him again. And so he's left with his son Isaac, his one remaining son. The one that was promised, obviously, to be birthed by Sarah. And Abraham loved Isaac. And it would be all the harder to sacrifice him. Because in in what God had already told him in the verses I read to you in Genesis, it would make no sense in light of God's promises. And on top of it, just being a father, being a parent here this morning, can you imagine this command? God wants you to do as far as you sort of understand it. That God is asking you to do this. And so the text tells us that it's a... It's a three-day journey. Now, part of us might wonder, you know what? It would have been a lot easier if it had just been right here and now do this. Let's see what's going to happen, how the story is going to unfold. But God doesn't do it that way. He has him go to Mount Moriah, which is interesting in and of itself. Now, you know, when I used to hear this story as a kid, maybe because I was a kid, I used to think that Isaac probably was about maybe this tall. And again, without belaboring the point due to time, there's actually quite a bit of evidence of the contrary. That Isaac may have been, it's suggested, and there's some good stuff that some scholars have kind of done some testing on and stuff to say that he may have been in his late teens. He may have been even as late as in his early 30s. He's not just a little, little boy from everything the tests suggest. The conversation is adult-like that he has with Isaac. And another thing as well as that is he tells him to carry the wood for the sacrifice. Be kind of hard for a little three-year-old boy to be carrying the wood. Doesn't it say something too about Isaac? That if he's in his teens, in his 20s, in his 30s, that he willingly had this kind of obedience to his father to do this. It wasn't like when he's on the altar, it wasn't like you get the sense that Isaac bucked it and fought it. It's a terrific challenge. As I've alluded to, Isaac had been born in a very special way. These parents weren't in their teens or their 20s. Man, they, I know families who have waited for children. And they haven't maybe been able to have children naturally. And they've had to adopt. And they love those kids. And they've gone through processes of waiting and waiting I just want you to understand the drama and the context here that we sometimes read these and we get 
we almost lose the emotion of what's really occurring in the text here. In God's earlier commands to Abraham, which were easier to follow and maybe understand, he had something to gain that balanced the loss. God told Abraham to leave his country, his people, and his father's household. But he also, the positive was he gave Abraham the promise of a new land, his own family, and a relationship with God himself, who would provide blessings that would go into the future and beyond. But like I said, sacrificing Isaac, it's like, um, say what, God? What? There's sometimes my kids, when they were younger, said, what? You know, didn't hear it. doesn't seem to make sense. And maybe this morning you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can say, you know what? I can kind of understand this because I'm experiencing some stuff right now. There's some things that are going on in my life that, frankly, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It's, it's stuff that I can't quite put together. There, it's not a, clear for me to see exactly what it is, God, that you're doing. And why you're allowing and permitting certain things to happen in my life. I was talking to a woman at my job a couple days ago whose daughter has a, um, she's in her early teens, probably I think about 12, and she has a benign brain tumor. But it's not an easy situation. Um, there's fluid that builds up and it causes vision issues and they've already drained the fluid one time and now they just got the news last week that they need to do it again. They need to go back in and do some major surgery and release the fluid. They can't take out the tumor. Um, it's inoperable. It's not malignant, but it's benign, but it's, it's, it's a thorny thing, as you can appreciate. She, the mother, seems to be doing as well as one can do with that news. Her husband, on the other hand, is not. He doesn't know the Lord, but the way he's responding to this, and she said this to me myself, or said this to me, and she said, you know, he's, he's bitter. He's angry. And even when he heard the news, and when the doctor said it last week, he got his hands and he just folded them and his fists were clenched tight. And he had an expression on his face of rage of why would God, and why is God allowing this for my daughter? On top of it, it's difficult because he's in law enforcement, so you're all the more cynical and hardened sometimes when this happens. You see so many people who you think should be maybe trading places. Why is that happening to his daughter? You wonder in Tracy right now, that family and volunteers are looking for an eight-year-old girl who's been missing since Friday, four o'clock. We need to pray for her. We need to pray for that family. These situations cause people to wonder, and there's those who run to God. This is a girl who's been missing, and they're not sure if she's been kidnapped or not. But there's those who will run to God, and then there's some who will curse God when these kind of situations happen. And yet we rely on the truth of what God's Word tells us about our God. And we know that the Bible tells us that our God is a God of love. And He cares more deeply than we'll ever know about not only us, but everyone who's on the face of this planet. He cares. And the exciting thing this morning is in this world of all the craziness and computers and texting and emails is that we have a God who we matter to. We matter to him, even in the impersonal environment that we live in now. You may be even more so in the Bay Area, where sometimes it's kind of hard to connect. God connects with us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his shed blood. God is a God of love. We, we remember that and we affirm that. 
And another thing that we affirm is that we do not control God. God is sovereign. If you're familiar with any of the writings of C.S. Lewis, and if you, of course, saw the line, the witch in the wardrobe, the central figure is that great lion, Aslan. And in C.S. Lewis's books, there's a key phrase in the book that appears over and over again, and it's this. Aslan is not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. We don't control him. We don't control God. You can't control Aslan, who is a picture of God. We can't explain all the things that God does. And if we're, with the minds that we have, as finite as they are, if we can understand just even a little bit, just a little bit of what God's doing, we're blessed. But if you and I think that we can understand the mind of God here today, well, I just need to get a little pin and prick your pride and that's in that mind of yours that you can do that. You can't. And I don't know if we need to do this in a sense as a fresh surrender each day or if this is something that maybe someone here doesn't struggle with, but we have to come to this place maybe many times where we say, God, I'm going to let you be God. You are God. And I'm going to give up and I'm going to surrender. I'm just going to surrender this. I'm going to stop fighting this fight that I think that I've got to be in control of my life and I'm going to arrange it. I'm going to arrange my destiny. We're not going to be able to do that. How do we respond when God asks us to do something that we don't want to do? Do we argue with him? Do we sometimes do what I have done as a child and I have seen over the years with mine? Delay? I heard a story yesterday at a memorial service for one of the ladies that probably some of you know, Carol Porter, who went to be with the Lord. How her son said, you know what? She told him, you've got to rake those leaves by the end of the weekend. And it was on Friday. And he said, okay. Saturday came around, Saturday morning, still hadn't raked those leaves. And she said, I just want to remind you, you need to rake those leaves by the end of the weekend. Saturday night, hadn't done them. Those leaves are still there. Sunday, went out and played basketball. Sunday night, you know those leaves still need to be raked. And he said, I'll do them Monday. And no, she said, no, you won't. And she handed him a rake, and it was night, and it was raining, and it was cold, and he went out and raked those leaves. Delay. He said, though, she did show her compassion by giving him a cup of hot chocolate an hour later <laughs> while he was outside. We want to delay. And sometimes, sadly, we just sometimes want to go outright disobey when God tells us to do something. Is there something that God is telling you, and you know it's coming from his voice today, that there's something God wants you to do? How are you processing that? Is there someone that he's just very gently saying, you know, I want you to share me with someone else? There's somebody at your job. There's somebody that you know in your neighborhood. There's somebody in your family. And I want you to not be ashamed of me and very graciously and lovingly and led by the Spirit, tell them about me. Don't hide me. Tell me. Is there some sin in our life, something that we're struggling with and we're kind of wanting to hold on? And we don't need to read one more verse that tells us to give it up. We already know. God's already said it. How many times does he have to repeat himself? to us before sometimes we want to do what he says. What did Abraham do? Did he delay? No, he didn't. Verse 3. He rose early in the morning. He didn't even wait till late in the morning. 
To be honest, if I'd gotten this news for one of my daughters, I think I would have tried to figure out a way to put this off. Make that journey somehow faster and delay the day. But he got up early in the morning. And interestingly, the Bible doesn't tell us. And so with some holy imagination, we kind of have to just think, okay, Abraham was human. He, he was a man. A sinful man at that, but a godly man. And don't you wonder, even in his obedience of wanting to obey the Father, I'm sure there was a heavy heart. I can't see that he was there smiling and just sort of almost uh, out of touch, you know, with reality here of what was happening. I think he had a heavy heart. And I kind of believe he probably had a puzzled mind as well. As he started on this journey, I mean, how would you feel? Put yourself in his shoes. And then verses 4 and 5, as I read, said, On the third day, they've arrived. Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship. And then listen to this. And return to you. We're going to return to you. I wonder, as he went through this journey, he started to think about the promises of God. started to remember the things that God had said to him earlier about how he was going to make them a father of a great nation and how about his descendants. And he thought, okay, God, but as far as I understand, if you're going to do this, there's got to be a son and there's got to be, you know, the process of births and so forth and multiplying and so forth. And I wonder... He said, I can trust you, God. I can trust you because of what you said. You promised that his descendants would come through the line of Isaac. And even though I can't figure this out yet, because you haven't revealed anything further yet to me, God, somehow, some way, you're going to work this out. You're going to accomplish your purposes. And I don't know how yet. And isn't that the right attitude for us to have? When we're faced with a situation, we may want God to give us the whole blueprint. If you're an architect here today or you design or whatever, you may want, I want to know A, B, C, D, and all that. And I want to see exactly how it's going to, the finished product's going to look. Abraham didn't have that. But he had something that made him say that. And of course, we know this is the case because, you know, you need to turn to it. Hebrews 11, listen to these two verses, 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. And he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham had the faith and trust in God that, you know what, even if this happened, God's going to raise him back. Is that faith? Man, is that faith. He didn't have all the recorded scriptures that you and I have to look back on this. And we kind of get it. And just when we think we get it, then we sink and we fail and we fall and we get fearful and our courage is lacking. Abraham had this kind of trust in God. I was at this memorial service, as I said yesterday, for Carol and her husband, Mark. They were married just shy of 50 years was helping to officiate the service, which I thought was pretty amazing in and of itself. I'm not sure I could do that if it was my wife. And he had amazing composure, but you could tell how much he loved his wife, and he's going to miss her. 
And he said, you know, when they found out about only about 10 or 11 or 12 days ago that they were going to stop the treatment for melanoma, that he then had this word from the Lord as he was studying. He said, you know what? Now there's no medicine involved any longer in this. There's no chemotherapy or radiation. So now he thought, God, now you're going to do this miracle yourself without any medical physicians at all. And you're going to cure her. And these two words that he received from God were, trust me. And his initial interpretation of that meant that that's what God was going to do. And when he shared that with his wife, she said, you know, my trust in God, in the course of their conversation, of course you can understand, they've just heard the news that everything is finishing as far as treatment. And she said, my trust in God through this process, and it's been about a year, maybe about eight months when she heard the news, is growing and has grown and has grown and has grown as a result of this trial. And she said to him, will you be able to trust him if he takes me? We need to hold on to what is loud and clear. God promises in his wonderful, lovely word to trust him even when things don't make sense. And we need to obey, brothers and sisters, and and it's easier said than done, but we need to obey like Abraham, without delay, without arguing, or disobedience for that matter. Verses 7 and 8. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Obeying, like I said, although the revelation from exactly what God is going to do here still isn't clear. But Abraham says, God's going to provide. And doesn't he always provide? He may not provide in exactly the way that we want him to provide. I admit that. I know that. But he always provides. And he's holding the answers that we don't see. And isn't it going to be an amazing thing when we get to heaven, those of us who have trusted the Lord Jesus, I, I think we're, I'd like to think that we're just going to be able to kind of understand a lot of the stuff that happened and how God was just doing this wonderful job of, of weaving. And he, as the master painter, he was painting this awesome portrait and picture and this awesome thing that we can just look and say, that's what you were doing. I didn't see it then, but I, I see it now. I'm not seeing things dimly any longer. Like we are here on earth, we're getting it, and I'm getting it. And then verses 9 to 12, as we read, Then he came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac. I can only imagine the tears that were flowing there. And he laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife. I got, you know, I, I don't know how close he got. But the angel, of course, says, and then he shouted and he said, and you know, for emphasis, importance here, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here am I. And he tells him, of course, as you read in verse 12, don't do it. God knows that you have not withheld your son, your only son. Brothers and sisters, Abraham passed the test, didn't he? He passed the test. And I'll be honest, if I was grading him on this, he gets an A. He gets an A. Early in the morning, he goes. He does exactly what God says, even though there's questions in his mind, even though he's trying to understand this, but he's trusting on the promises of God. 
And the second thing about this test is it reveals the motives. Abraham, in this whole situation, had to trust God for who he was. And what motivated his faith? This, this giant of faith in God. What was it? Was it personal gain for what he would get out of God or was it for his love for God? Was that what carried him? I believe it was his love for God. I honestly believe that. Two questions. And these are difficult ones to answer if we're going to be really serious or sincere and honest with ourselves. But does our faith have conditions on it? Sometimes our prayer life reflects a wish list of what we're not only hoping, not only wishing, but we're expecting. And kind of like the child who writes that list for the 25th of December, kind of demanding Does our faith have conditions on it? And what do we expect out of God? What do you expect? What do I expect out of God beyond the joy of simply just knowing Him? Is that enough? How much more do we want? One of the subtle things that I've been having to think through and work through and I'm just wanting to grow in is to be very careful for me. Maybe you can identify with this. Not to have a misplaced belief that God is there to give me what I want. But he wants to rather show me and continually show me the joy of knowing him and trusting him. And so then if God in his grace allows, allows the recession to impact my life. Or to impact your life with the hard stuff of what a recession by its very nature does. Whether it's unemployment or loss of 401s. Or the bubble has burst in your housing value. Or all the other things that come with it. God has allowed it in our lives and in the lives of many others for a purpose. And maybe it's to strip us of our goods and to remind us of his grace and simply the joy of the richness of knowing him even though we go through these things. And then lastly, this test I think also revealed for Abraham and it reveals for us our priorities, doesn't it? And our actions. Depending on what we most hold dear and you know what it is as you're sitting there in your seat and as I'm standing here, I know what it is that I hold dear. God's going to test us in a variety of ways. Abraham, obviously, was the willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Think about the rich young ruler in Luke. It was his possessions. What if God came to you after you leave here today and you're back at your house and you're about ready to open up the fridge and freezer and have some lunch, put something in the microwave, and all of a sudden God appears in your kitchen. And you physically saw him and he said, I want, you to, I want to ask you a question. Are you willing to give me the thing that is most important to you? How would you answer? What would it be? Possessions? People you love? Is it your pride? Some things that we might want to have a difficulty letting go of aren't bad enough themselves. But he says, you know what? You're holding on to them too tight. You've got him with a clenched fist. 
And I want you to hold on to those things if they're appropriate, but with open arms, with open hands. And be willing to let go of those things if that's what God wants you to do. And I'm going to trust you irregardless. Verse 2, verse 12, and verse 16, if you looked at Genesis 22, there was a common theme. It says that Isaac loved his son, his only son, the son whom he loves. And Abraham was willing to do that very sacrifice. He didn't have to, but to demonstrate his love and fear and respect for God. Do I love God this morning? Do I love God so much that I'd be willing to give it up, whatever it is he might put his finger on and say, let go. Let go of that thing. Good news I want you to know this morning as we wrap up is God's not saying, I want you to, if you like, tense up your spiritual faith muscles. You know, and it's all, we're all going to stand up together and we're all going to just start doing some spiritual exercises together. And we're going to, in and of ourselves, we're somehow going to create this faith that is apart from reliance and trust in God. We, we can't do this ourselves. It's not like we're going to be able to say today, okay, all of us, let's just say uh, on the count of three, one, two, three, I'm going to be more courageous. It's not going to be that way. It's not going to happen like that. And it's not going to happen by saying, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to try in all my energy and strength to be more like Abraham. We can learn from him. But do you notice the good news, and we read it, is that Abraham... Verse 13, raised his eyes. He raised his eyes and he looked. Didn't look. He raised his eyes. He looked up. Other translation says, and he saw a ram. He saw God's provision. He saw God's grace in that situation. He saw that ram caught in a thicket. And you and I, what we need to do is look up. We need to look at the one who provides who provides the grace and the strength and the courage in order to be the kind of person that's going to pass the test. This week, God's going to give you and I a test. You know what? You may have more than one. I don't know if it's multiple choice or true or false or fill in the blanks. But I trust by His grace that we will determine as we just prepare for the test, whatever it is that's coming, to study. Study the Word, like we want to do on a test. And then after you study, and you're studying the Word as well as that, you, you trust. You say, okay, God, now I'm giving it to you. I've done, I've done what I can, but now I'm going to trust you. And then maybe by the grace of God, pass the test for His glory and for His honor. There's a, a song just in, as I close, and I remember some of you remember it from years ago, and it was by Twyla Parrish, and she said, Sang the song, Do I Trust You, Lord? And the words are, Sometimes my little heart can't understand what's in your will, what's in your plan. So many times I'm tempted to ask you why. But I can never forget it for long, Lord. What you do could not be wrong. So I believe you even when I must cry. Do I trust you, Lord? Does the river flow? Do I trust you, Lord? Does the north wind blow? You can see my heart, you can read my mind, and you got to know that I would rather die than to lose my faith in the one I love. Do I trust you, Lord? Do I trust you? I know the answers, I've given them all, but suddenly now I feel so small, shaken down to the cavity in my soul. I know the doctrine and theology, 
but right now they don't mean much to me. This time there's only one thing I've got to know. Do I trust you, Lord? Does the robin sing? Do I trust you, Lord? Does it rain in spring? You can see my heart. You can read my mind. And you've got to know that I would rather die than to lose my faith in the one I love. Do I trust you, Lord? Do I trust you? And she concludes, I will trust you, Lord, when I don't know why. I will trust you, Lord, till the day I die. I will trust you, Lord, when I'm blind with pain. You were God before and you'll never change. I will trust you. I will trust you. I will trust you, Lord. Father, we pray that as we continue on this journey of faith and in trusting you that Lord, we will indeed pass the test that you give us, that you will see that, God, we do love you. We do want to follow you, and we do want to trust you when life and what is happening around us doesn't make much sense. We know that you're in control, and we just want to reaffirm that today. I want to thank you, God, that you're the great provider where Isaac did not have to be sacrificed and that there was a ram caught there in the thicket. We think of the picture of the Lord Jesus and that you did not withhold your son from us, Lord. You gave him freely. Isaac did not have to be sacrificed, but you gave us your son. We love him today. We love you for giving him to us, Father. And we just pray for your blessing and strength for us for the rest of this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.